This week's episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 11th of December 2023 at home in Wicklow. And it is, very simply, three stories for your seasonal enjoyment. Two stories by very established authors of yesteryear and one story of my own, which is not, it's not a Christmas story. But I think it is an appropriate inclusion for for this episode. It's a story that I wrote a couple of years ago. Uh, I wrote and recorded, produced for Aura, the sleep and wellness app that I produce content for. So that story and two others, that is what's coming up. So this is real real passive stuff <laughs> I'm not going to raise any icky issues around mental health or personal responsibility or politics or the Middle East this is just pure festive fun um, three stories with contrasting themes and tones but uh, I hope you enjoy them and yeah, that's it. Okay, that's all. I'll see you around the corner. Cheers. Ooh, not gonna change my mind. Leaving the dream behind. Keep my mojo inside. Hi, my name is Dara Clear, and you're listening to The Clear Out. You're very welcome. I'm so happy to have your company for the next, I don't know, hour or so. So today I have a very special episode planned planned not long before pressing record but planned nonetheless the season is upon us it is that time of year the festive time of year christmas if that's <laughs> christmas merry christmas if that's what you celebrate uh, i'm here to contribute to the to the mirth and merrymaking now it's not the christmas special for the last two years on the podcast, um, the you know the only two previous Christmases on the podcast, I've done a, a Christmas episode, which usually consists of a new Christmas story that I've written, which is has become somewhat of an obsession of mine to try and write a great Christmas story. So I write one every Christmas and record it. They used to appear on my my blog. Uh, which gave birth to the podcast so that'll be in the Christmas special I have an idea my stories always start usually with an idea I, I rarely have a structure I usually have a character and a situation and I have that in my head at the moment I'm not sure where that story is going to go I have not set pen to paper yet or fingers to keys um, and if I can persuade my wife <laughs> If I can persuade my long-suffering wife, I will. I will uh, cajole her into accompanying me um, on some Christmas songs, also for the Christmas special. Last year, I think it was really not good. I was murdered with a cold, and I did not sing well. And my wife admonished me <laughs> off mic. I said, why don't you just record these in November? <laughs> I can't do it. I insist. I insist on doing it, you know, at the time, close to as close as possible to the time of the episode 
to fully capture and be faithful to the spirit of the season. Anyway, hopefully that will be something for you to look forward to, which will be in next week's episode, All Going Well. But this week, just to not be a complete Scrooge, I am going to read. (laughs) I'm going to read from a book. The book is called Round About the Christmas Tree, a miscellany of festive stories edited by Becky Brown. That's right. Becky Brown. I've never heard of her. This is a lovely little hardback edition of Christmas stories that my parents-in-law, hello Anita, hello Gavin, gave to us, the family. Uh, I felt it was primarily to me, but the inscription addresses it to my wife, myself, my daughter, our daughter, I should say. Um, and it's this you know, miniature hardback book with Christmas stories of, of yesteryear. They're definitely stories of a bygone age. There's a couple of Hans Christian Andersen stories in there. Uh, there's an Anthony Trollope story, a Dostoevsky short story. You'd think that would be the one I'd go for. There's a Sherlock Holmes story. There's Dickens. There's Washington Irving, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton. Um, so you're, kind of, you're getting a flavour. Nathaniel Hawthorne. So quite a few authors from the 1800s and early 1900s. But I have glanced at two um that i think you have a chance you have some chance of enjoying and i'm going to read those and i'm going to include a third story which is not a christmas story but it has a bit of significance to me um and it's a story that i wrote and recorded for aura can you feel my aura for aura the sleep and wellness app that i produce some content for that's the preferred word. I don't prefer it, but that is the preferred word. I, I write some stories and meditations and reflections for Aura. And so I'm going to throw that in at the end as well. So it's uh, it's story a go-go. And I'm going to start with this one, which is by the author L.M. Montgomery. Now, if that name is not familiar to, to you, she is the author of... Anne of Green Gables. That's right, your favourite childhood story of the little girl who goes to a farm in, in Canada <laughs> and makes mischief but wins everybody's hearts. Um, so this is one of her short stories, and I just glanced at it before, and it kind of epitomises a very pure uh, sentimentality. But it's kind of cute, and I don't mind a bit of sentimentality if... If the package uh, strikes the right balance, so you've got to put these stories into the the context of their time, and just go with it is my suggestion. And sure, listen, if you can't abide it, just fast forward to the next story. Okay, so this is a story called "A Christmas Inspiration." Well, I really think Santa Claus has been very good to us all, said Jean Lawrence, pulling the pins out of her heavy coil of fair hair and letting it ripple over her shoulders. So do I, said Nellie Preston, as well as she could with a mouthful of chocolates. Those blessed 
home folks of mine seem to have divined by instinct the very things I most wanted. It was the dusk of Christmas Eve, and they were all in Jean Lawrence's room at number 16 Chestnut Terrace. Number 16 was a boarding house, and boarding houses are not proverbially cheerful places in which to spend Christmas, but Jean's room at least was a pleasant spot, and all the girls had brought their Christmas presents in to show each other. Christmas came on Sunday that year, and the Saturday evening mail at Chestnut Terrace had been an exciting one. Jean had lighted the pink-globed lamp on her table, and the mellow light fell over merry faces as the girls chatted about their gifts. On the table was a big white box, heaped with roses, that betokened a bit of Christmas extravagance on somebody's part. Jean's brother had sent them to her from Montreal, and all the girls were enjoying them in common. Number 16 Chestnut Terrace was overrun with girls generally, but just now only five were left. All the others had gone home for Christmas, but these five could not go and were bent on making the best of it. Belle and Olive Reynolds, who were sitting on the bed, Jean could never keep them off it, were high school girls. They were said to be always laughing, and even the fact that they could not go home for Christmas because of a young brother had measles did not dampen their spirits. Beth Hamilton, who was hovering over the roses, and Nellie Preston, who was eating candy, were art students, and their homes were too far away to visit. As for Jean Lawrence, she was an orphan and had no home of her own. She worked on the staff of one of the big city newspapers, and the other girls were a little in awe of her cleverness. But her nature was a chummy one, and her room was a favourite rendezvous. Everybody liked frank, open-handed and hearted Jean. It was so funny to see the postman when he came this evening, said Olive. He just bulged with parcels. They were sticking out in every direction. We all got our share of them, said Jean, with a sigh of content. Even the cook got six, I counted. Miss Allen didn't get a thing, not even a letter, said Beth quickly. Beth had a trick of seeing things that other girls didn't. I forgot Miss Allen. No, I don't believe she did, answered Jean thoughtfully, as she twisted up her pretty hair. How Dismal it must be to be so forlorn as that on Christmas Eve of all times. Ugh, I'm glad I have friends. I saw Miss Allen watching us as we opened our parcels and letters, Beth went on. I happened to look up once, and such an expression as was on her face, girls. It was pathetic and sad and envious all at once. It really made me feel bad. For five minutes... She concluded honestly. Hasn't Miss Allen any friends at all? asked Beth. No, I don't think she has, answered Jean. She has lived here for 14 years, so Mrs Pickrell says. Think of that, girls. 14 years at Chestnut Terrace. Isn't any wonder that she's thin and dried up and snappy? Nobody ever comes to see her. And she never goes anywhere, said Beth. Dear me, she must feel lonely now 
when everybody else is being remembered by their friends. I can't forget her face tonight. It actually haunts me. Girls, how would you feel if you hadn't anyone belonging to you and if nobody thought about you at Christmas? Ow, said Olive, as if the mere idea made her shiver. A little silence followed. To tell the truth, none of them liked Miss Allen. They knew that she did not like them either, but considered them frivolous and pert and complained when they made a racket. The skeleton at the feast, Jean called her, and certainly the presence of the pale, silent, discontented-looking woman at the number 16 table did not tend to heighten its festivity. Presently, Jean said with a dramatic flourish, Girls, I have an inspiration, a Christmas inspiration. What is it? cried four voices. Just this. Let us give Miss Allen a Christmas surprise. She has not received a single present, and I'm sure she feels lonely. Just think how we would feel if we were in her place. That is true, said Olive thoughtfully. Do you know, girls, this evening I went to her room with a message from Mrs Pickerel, and I do believe she had been crying. Her room looked dreadfully bare and cheerless, too. I think she's very poor. What are we to do, Jean? Let us each give her something nice. We can put the things just outside of her door so that she will see them whenever she opens it. I'll give her some of Fred's roses too and I'll write a Christmassy letter in my very best style to go with them, said Jean, warming up to her ideas as she talked. The other girls caught her spirit and entered into the plan with enthusiasm. Splendid, cried Beth. Jean, it is an inspiration, sure enough. Haven't we been horribly selfish, thinking of nothing but our own gifts and fun and pleasure? I really feel ashamed. Let us do the thing up the very best way we can, said Nellie, forgetting even her beloved chocolates in her eagerness. The shops are open yet. Let us go uptown and invest. Five minutes later, five capped and jacketed figures were scurrying up the street in the frosty, starlit December dusk. Miss Allen, in her cold little room, heard their gay voices and sighed. She was crying by herself in the dark. It was Christmas for everybody but her, she thought drearily. In an hour, the girls came back with their purchases. Now, let's hold a council of war, said Jean jubilantly. I hadn't the faintest idea what Miss Allen would like, so I just guessed wildly. I got her a lace handkerchief and a big bottle of perfume and a painted photograph frame, and I'll stick my own photo in it for fun. That was really all I could afford. Christmas purchases have left my purse dreadfully lean. I got her a glove box and a pin tray, said Belle, and Olive got her a calendar and Whittier's poems. And besides, we are going to give her half of that big plummy fruitcake mother sent us from home. I'm sure she hasn't tasted anything so delicious for years, for fruitcakes don't grow on Chestnut Terrace, and she never goes anywhere else for a meal. Beth had bought a pretty cup and saucer and said she meant to give one of her pretty watercolours too. 
Nellie, true to her reputation, had invested in a big box of chocolate creams, a gorgeously striped candy cane, a bag of oranges and a brilliant lampshade of rose-coloured crepe paper to top off with. It makes such a lot of show for the money, she explained. I am bankrupt, like Jean. Well, we've got a lot of pretty things, said Jean in a tone of satisfaction. Now we must do them up nicely. Will you wrap them in tissue paper, girls, and tie them with baby ribbon? Here's a box of it. While I write that letter. While the others chatted over their parcels, Jean wrote her letter. And Jean could write delightful letters. She had a decided talent in that respect. And her correspondents all declared her letters to be things of beauty and joy forever. She put her best into Miss Allen's Christmas letter. Since then, she has written many bright and clever things, but I do not believe she ever in her life wrote anything more genuinely original and delightful than that letter. Besides, it breathed the very spirit of Christmas, and all the girls declared that it was splendid. You must all sign it now, said Jean, and I'll put it in one of those big envelopes. And Nellie, won't you write her name on it in fancy letters? which Nellie proceeded to do, and furthermore embellished the envelope by a border of chubby cherubs dancing hand in hand around it, and a sketch of number 16 Chestnut Terrace in the corner, in lieu of a stamp. Not content with this, she hunted out a huge sheet of drawing paper and drew upon it an original pen and ink design after her own heart. A doodish cat, Miss Allen was fond of the number 16 cat, if she could be said to be fond of anything, was portrayed seated on a rocker, arrayed in smoking jacket and cap, with a cigar waved airily aloft in one paw, while the other held out a placard bearing the legend, Merry Christmas. A second cat in full street costume bowed politely, hat in paw, and waved a banner inscribed with Happy New Year, while faintly suggested kittens gambled around the border. The girls laughed until they cried over it, and voted it to be the best thing Nellie had yet done in original work. All this had taken time, and it was past eleven o'clock. Miss Allen had cried herself to sleep long ago, and everybody else in Chestnut Terrace was abed, when five figures cautiously crept down the hall, headed by Jean with a dim lamp. Outside of Miss Allen's door, the procession halted, and the girls silently arranged their gifts on the floor, "'That's done,' whispered Jean in a tone of satisfaction as they tiptoed back. "'And now let us go to bed, or Mrs Pickerel, bless her heart, "'will be down on us for burning so much midnight oil. "'Oil has gone up, you know, girls.' "'It was in the early morning that Miss Allen opened her door. "'But early as it was, another door down the hall was half open too.' and five rosy faces were peering cautiously out. The girls had been up for an hour for fear they would miss the sight, and were all in Nellie's room, which commanded a view of Miss Allen's door. That lady's face was a study. Amazement, incredulity, wonder chased each other over it, succeeded by a glow of pleasure. On the floor before her was a snug little pyramid of parcels, topped by Jean's letter. On a chair behind it was a bowl of delicious hothouse roses and Nellie's placard. 
Miss Allen looked down the hall but saw nothing, for Jean had slammed the door just in time. Half an hour later, when they were going down to breakfast, Miss Allen came along the hall with outstretched hands to meet them. She had been crying again, but I think her tears were happy ones. She was smiling now. A cluster of Jean's roses were pinned on her breast. Oh, girls, girls, she said, with a little tremble in her voice. I can never thank you enough. It was so kind and sweet of you. You don't know how much good you have done me. Breakfast was an unusually cheerful affair at number 16 that morning. There was no skeleton at the feast and everybody was beaming. Miss Allen laughed and talked like a girl herself. Oh, how surprised I was, she said. The roses were like a bit of summer and those cats of Nellie's were so funny and delightful. And your letter too, Jean. I cried and laughed over it. I shall read it every day for a year. After breakfast, everyone went to Christmas service. The girls went uptown to the church they attended. The city was very beautiful in the morning sunshine. There had been a white frost in the night and the tree-lined avenues and public squares seemed like glimpses of fairyland. How lovely the world is, said Jean. This is really the very happiest Christmas morning I have ever known, declared Nellie. I never felt so really Christmassy in my inmost soul before. I suppose, said Beth thoughtfully, that it is because we have discovered for ourselves the old truth that it is more blessed to give than to receive. I've always known it, in a way, but I never realised it before. Blessing on Jean's Christmas inspiration, said Nellie. But girls, let us try to make it an all-the-year-round inspiration, I say. We can bring a little of our own sunshine into Miss Allen's life, as long as we live with her. Amen to that, said Jean heartily. Oh, listen, girls, the Christmas chimes. And over all the beautiful city was wafted the grand old message of peace on earth and goodwill to all the world. Now, there you are, L.M. Montgomery's A Christmas Inspiration. <laughs> I'm laughing. All those girls, and do you know what? Frivolous and pert was how they were described, or how they were, you know, that, that, that was the, the opinion of Miss Allen regarding the girls. I think frivolous and pert would be, that sounds delightful to me. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, and oil, the price of oil has gone up, girls, you know. It's, um, it's cute though, isn't it? It is cute. I'm not quite sure how old those girls are. They're in a boarding house. Are they in their early 20s? Are, in their, are, are they be in their mid to late teens? They were considered young women of the world, going back to the times of L.M. Montgomery. Um, okay, so look, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep moving. Um, you may have heard in the background Pepper the dog rolling, cavorting beside me like the... The kittens gambling on that uh, lovely picture from the story. She, um, because I'm, I'm 
by choice this week I'm recording in the the, the living room um, I had the stove fired up so you may also have heard in the background the crackle of the stove I thought that would be kind of atmospheric no um, okay the next story I'm going to read is called Bertie's Christmas Eve by Saki so Saki was the pen name of what was his name some English guy with a, a double barreled name Henry Hugo oh I don't know I, knew, I, only, I didn't even know that before I only found that out tonight but Saki I remember Saki one of his stories was on our school curriculum in secondary school it was the the lumber room and I don't think I thought particularly highly of it but it was it was it was taught to us anyway um but this is a story of Saki's and I've chosen these two stories for their brevity, <laughs> but they're also different in tone. And I think this one, if the previous story was quite sugary and sentimental, um, bordering on impossibly pure, this this story has a little bit more uh, of, a, of an edge to it, although I think it's quite satirical. And I think that was a bit of a trademark of Saki's. He was unafraid to depict sort of um yeah more sort of shaded and nuanced characters and you know a bit more mischievous and spiteful and petty um such was his sense of humor i suppose anyway i'll give this a lash i've never read it before i just kind of skimmed through it and it looked kind of funny excuse me i'm sorry i'm just um just after having my, my, a cup of cinnamon tea. That's, that's the second time in recent weeks. Um, okay, the, the bloody font in this book is very small and I need a new prescription on my glasses. So I'm, um, if I'm hesitating, I'm kind of moving back and forth a little bit from the, from the book so I can see the text more clearly. Anyway, I'll give, it, I'll give it a go. It was Christmas Eve and the family circle of Luke Steffink, Esquire, was aglow with the amiability and random mirth which the occasion demanded. A long and lavish dinner had been partaken of, weights had been round and sung carols, the house party had regaled itself with more carolling on its own account, and there had been romping which, even in a pulpit reference, could not have been condemned as ragging. In the midst of the general glow, however, there was one black, unkindled cinder. Bertie Steffink, nephew of the aforementioned Luke, had early in life adopted the profession of ne'er-do-will. His father had been something of the kind before him. At the age of 18, Bertie had commenced that round of visits to our colonial possessions, so seemly and desirable in the case of a prince of the blood, so suggestive of insincerity in a young man of the middle class. He had gone to grow tea in Ceylon and fruit in British Columbia and to help sheep to grow wool in Australia. At the age of 20, he had just returned from some similar errand in Canada, from which it may be gathered that the trial he gave to these various experiments was of the summary drumhead nature. Luke Steffink, who fulfilled the troubled role of guardian and deputy parent to Bertie, deplored the persistent manifestation of the homing instinct on his nephew's part. 
and his solemn thanks earlier in the day for the blessing of reporting a united family had no reference to Bertie's return. Arrangements had been promptly made for packing the youth off to a distant corner of Rhodesia, whence return would be a difficult matter. The journey to this uninviting destination was imminent. In fact, a more careful and willing traveller would have already begun to think about his packing. Hence, Bertie was in no mood to share in the festive spirit which displayed itself around him, and resentment smouldered within him at the eager, self-absorbed discussion of social plans for the coming months, which he heard on all sides. Beyond depressing his uncle and the family circle generally by singing Say au revoir and not goodbye, he had taken no part in the evening's conviviality. Eleven o'clock had struck some half hour ago, and the elder Steffings began to throw out suggestions leading up to that process which they called retiring for the night. Come, Teddy, it's time you were in your little bed, you know, said Luke Steffink to his thirteen-year-old son. That's where we all ought to be, said Mrs. Steffink. There wouldn't be room, said Bertie. The remark was considered to border on the scandalous. Everybody ate raisins and almonds with the nervous industry of sheep feeding during threatening weather. In Russia, said Horace Bordenby, who was staying in the house as a Christmas guest, I've read that the peasants believe that if you go into a cow house or stable at midnight on Christmas Eve, you will hear the animals talk. They're supposed to have the gift of speech at that one moment of the year. Oh, do let's all go down to the cowhouse and listen to what they've got to say, exclaimed Beryl, to whom anything was thrilling and amusing if you did it in a troop. Mrs. Steffink made a laughing protest, but gave a virtual consent by saying, we must all wrap up well then. The idea seemed a scatterbrained one to her, and almost heathenish, but it afforded an opportunity for throwing the young people together, and as such she welcomed it. Mr. Horace Bordenby was a young man with quite substantial prospects, and he had danced with Beryl at a local subscription ball a sufficient number of times to warrant the authorised inquiry on the part of the neighbours whether there was anything in it. Though Mrs. Steffink would not have put it so in so many words, she shared the idea of the Russian peasantry that on this night the beast might speak. The cowhouse stood at the junction of the garden with a small paddock, an isolated survival in a suburban neighbourhood of what had once been a small farm. Luke Steffink was complacently proud of his cowhouse and his two cows. He felt that they gave him a stamp of solidity which no number of Wyandots or Orpingtons could impart. They even seemed to link him in a sort of inconsequent way with those patriarchs who derived importance from their floating capital of flocks and herds, he-asses and she-asses. It had been an anxious and momentous occasion when he had had to decide definitely between the buyer and the ranch for the naming of his villa residence. A December midnight was hardly the moment he would have chosen for showing his farm building to visitors. But since it was a fine night and the young people were anxious for an excuse for a mild frolic, Luke consented to chaperone the expedition. The servants had long since gone to bed, so the house was left in charge of Bertie, 
who scornfully declined to stir out on the pretext of listening to bovine conversation. We must go quietly, said Luke, as he headed the procession of giggling young folk, brought up in the year in the brought up in the rear by the shawled and hooded figure of Mrs. Steffink. I've always laid stress on keeping this a quiet and orderly neighbourhood. It was a few minutes to midnight when the party reached the cowhouse and made its way in by the light of Luke's stable lantern. For a moment, everyone stood in silence, almost with a feeling of being in church. Daisy, the one lying down, is by a short-horn bull out of a Guernsey cow, announced Luke in a hushed voice, which was in keeping with the foregoing impression. I should have read that in a hushed voice. Daisy, the one lying down, is by a short-horn bull out of a Guernsey cow, announced Luke in a hushed voice, which was in keeping with the foregoing impression. Is she? said Bordenby, rather as if he had expected her to be by Rembrandt. Myrtle is... Myrtle's family history was cut short by a little scream from the women of the party. The cowhouse door had closed noiselessly behind them, and the key had turned gratingly in the lock. Then they heard Bertie's voice, pleasantly wishing them good night, and his footsteps retreating along the garden path. Luke Steffink strode to the window. It was a small square opening of the old-fashioned sort, with iron bars let into the stonework. Unlock this door this instant, he shouted, with as much air of menacing authority as a hen might assume when screaming through the bars of a coop at a marauding hawk. In reply to his summons, the hall door closed with a defiant bang. A neighbouring clock struck the hour of midnight. If the cows had received the gift of human speech at that moment, they would not have been able to make themselves heard. Seven or eight other voices were engaged in describing Bertie's present conduct and his general character at a high pressure of excitement and indignation. In the course of half an hour or so, everything that it was permissible to say about Bertie had been said some dozens of times, and other topics began to come to the front. The extreme mustiness of the cowhouse, the possibility of it catching fire, and the probability of it being a routen house for the vagrant rats of the neighbourhood. And still no sign of deliverance came to the unwilling vigil-keepers. Towards one o'clock... The sound of rather boisterous and undisciplined carol singing approached rapidly and came to a sudden anchorage, apparently just outside the garden gate. A motorload of youthful bloods, in a state of high conviviality, had made a temporary halt for repairs. The stoppage, however, did not extend to the vocal efforts of the party, and the watchers in the cowshed were treated to a highly unauthorised rendering of Good King Wenceslas, in which the adjective good appeared to be very carelessly applied. The noise had the effect of bringing Bertie out into the garden, but he utterly ignored the pale, angry faces peering out of the cowhouse window and concentrated his attention on the revellers outside the gate. Wassail, you chaps, he shouted. Wassail, old sport, they shouted back. We jolly well drink your health, only we've nothing to drink it in. 
Come and wassail inside, said Bertie, hospitably. I'm all alone, and there's heaps of wet. They were total strangers, but his touch of kindness made them instantly his kin. In another moment, the unauthorised version of King Wenceslas, which, like many other scandals, grew worse on repetition, went echoing up the garden path. Two of the revellers gave an impromptu performance on the way by executing the staircase waltz up the terraces of what, Stu- of, of what Luke Steffink, hitherto with some justification, called his rock garden. The rock part of it was still there when the waltz had been accorded its third encore. Luke, more than ever like a cooped hen behind the cowhouse bars, was in a position to realise the feelings of concert-goers unable to countermand the call for an encore, which they neither desire nor deserve. The hall door closed with a bang on Bertie's guests, and the sounds of merriment became faint and muffled to the weary watchers at the other end of the garden. Presently, two ominous pops in quick succession made themselves distinctly heard. "'They've got at the champagne!' exclaimed Mrs. Steffink. Perhaps it's the sparkling Moselle, said Luke, hopefully. Three or four more pops were heard. The champagne and the sparkling Moselle, said Mrs. Steffink. Luke uncorked an expletive, which, like brandy in a temperance household, was only used on rare emergencies. Mr. Horace Bordenby had been making use of similar expressions under his breath for a considerable time past. The experiment of throwing the young people together had been prolonged beyond a point when it was likely to produce any romantic result. Some forty minutes later, the hall door opened and disgorged a crowd that had been thrown off any restraint of shyness that might have influenced its earlier actions. Its vocal efforts in the direction of carol singing were now supplemented by instrumental music, A Christmas tree that had been prepared for the children of the gardener and other household retainers had yielded a rich spoil of tin trumpets, rattles and drums. The life story of King Wenceslas had been dropped. Luke was thankful to notice, but it was intensely irritating for the chilled prisoners in the cowhouse to be told that it was a hot time in the old town tonight, together with some accurate but entirely superfluous information as to the imminence of Christmas morning. Judging by the protests which began to be shouted from the upper windows of neighbouring houses, the sentiments prevailing in the cowhouse were heartily echoed in other quarters. The revellers found their car and, what was more remarkable, managed to drive off in it with a parting fanfare of tin trumpets. The lively beat of a drum disclosed the fact that the master of the revels remained on the scene. Bertie! came in an angry, imploring chorus of shouts and screams from the cowhouse window. "'Hello!' cried the owner of the name, turning his rather errant steps in the direction of the summons. "'Are you people still there? Must have heard everything,' cows got to say by this time. "'If you haven't, no use waiting. After all, it's a Russian legend.' And Russian Christmas Eve, not you for another fortnight. Better come out. After one or two ineffectual attempts, he managed to pitch the key of the cowhouse door in through the window. Then, lifting his voice to the strains of I'm afraid to go home in the dark, 
with a lusty drum accompaniment. He led the way back to the house. The hurried procession of the released that followed in his steps came in for a good deal of the adverse comment that his exuberant display had evoked. It was the happiest Christmas Eve he had ever spent. To quote his own words, he had a rotten Christmas. There you go. That's um, <laughs> that's Bertie's Christmas Eve and um, tonally quite a departure from the previous story. So, um, yeah, gas, very, um, very English. Our colonial possessions is the phrase that stuck, stuck out to me. Tricky, tricky stuff. But um, feckless middle-class English Egypts, I think, is the uh, the appropriate term. Okay, I'm going to move straight along and add a story of my own, simply called One on One. And as I said, I recorded this for Aura, the wellness sleep and wellness app, and so the audio the audio quality might be a little bit different to what you've heard so far Um, because I'm just going to kind of drop it in I'm not going to read it and I'll see if I can just match up match up the match up the audio as best I can but um, be please be forgiving if um, if if it bothers you if there's a difference and I'll just drop in at the end for a little wrap-up okay this is one on one by me One-on-one. A young woman opened a closet and stooped down to grab her shoes. She held them in her hands and looked at them briefly before putting them on. They weren't as bright and shiny as when she had first got them, but they still had something to say. Purple converse always had something to say. They weren't actually purple, they were grape. Her dad joked that they had to crush 10,000 grapes to colour each shoe. 10,000 for the left and 10,000 for the right. He said that was a serious waste of wine. She had on her old school grey sweats and the shoes popped against the monochrome of the sportswear. In the kitchen, she glugged a large glass of milk, kissed her grandmother goodbye and left the house with a half-eaten banana in her mouth. She buttoned up her yellow varsity jacket as she hit the curb, pulling her green beanie down tighter over her head to better protect her from the bitter winter wind. Her breath came out in white plumes, and she moved into it as she picked up her pace to bring herself to the subway a bit quicker. In her knapsack, she could feel the spalding bounce against her back as she jogged over the cracks in the sidewalk. At more or less the same time, in another part of the city, a chess set was being carefully put into a bag by a well-dressed older man. He wore a smart black suit with a fine pinstripe in it 
Underneath, a rich burgundy vest sat over an immaculate white-collared shirt. Nestling tidily beneath his Adam's apple sat an ochre silk cravat, its startling deep orange a shock of colour beside the pale skin of his neck and face. His black leather shoes had been polished with great care and reflected the attention to detail and finishing that were evident in every aspect of the man's appearance. Freshly shaved from the barber that morning, the astringent sting of lotion still sat on his jaw and cheeks. After he had put on his overcoat, gloves and scarf, and placed a dapper Homburg on his head, he regarded himself in the mirror before exiting the apartment, the bag with the chest set tucked under his left arm. He descended in the lift and pushed through the revolving doors to emerge into the crisp morning, the wind unapologetic as it blew into his face. Placing his right hand on his head, to ensure the Homburg was secure, he made his way slowly towards the park. Across the river, a young man waited patiently outside a pool hall. In one hand he held a coffee, in the other an oblong leather case in which was kept, in two pieces, his instrument of choice, the balabushka, a handmade maple pool cue, that, the longer he'd had it, the more he'd grown to treasure it. The pool hall wasn't going to open for another twenty minutes, but he was happy to wait. He was there early to get the table he wanted. He knew there were players, the regulars, who were basically fixtures in the place, like the old jukebox that had been sitting in the same corner for fifty years, and he wanted to set himself up as inconspicuously as possible so he'd be left alone to enjoy his game. In his ears, an old singer sang an old song. He closed his eyes and went where the singer sent him. She stepped onto the platform, ran up the steps, pushed through the turnstile and up another flight of steps, that brought her into the cold, bright light of a sun uninterested in sitting any higher in the sky. It offered no heat, only stark and somewhat pitiful illumination. It was the best it could do for that time of year, and she was unconcerned as she bounced cheerfully towards her destination. She was eager to get there. She was eager to begin. She was in the mood to play, she was in the mood to be better than last time. She moved easily and looked forward to feeling the ball respond to her touch. As the old man entered the park, he paused to look up at the trees that lined the path he was about to follow. They were bare and forlorn, shorn of their leaves and their branches resembled witches' spiny fingers reaching up to the sky. He proceeded slowly, his methodical step steady and even. He wasn't in danger of being rushed by anybody. He might have been a clockwork figure, 
So precise was his gait and footfall. His face and eyes betrayed nothing. They were impassive, inscrutable. They were just part of the whole. An old man advancing on an invisible conveyor belt. A tired-looking man arrived to open up the pool hall. He was the manager, and a heavy stubble covered his jowly face. He wore a patterned jumper beneath a battered leather jacket, and in spite of the cold, had no hat to cover his lank hair. Pale jeans and sad brown shoes completed his look. He grunted a cursory hello to the young man leaning against the front of the building. The young man lifted his head in acknowledgement of the greeting and threw his cup in the trash before following the other man up the steep corridor of stairs that led to the room he had visited regularly so many years earlier. The fog of neglect hung in the air and his nose wrinkled involuntarily as he entered the room. There was a small bar to the left of the door, and he watched the manager walk behind it to turn on lights, the radio, and the large red coffee machine that would provide hot black sustenance to the customers for the rest of the day. The lights tinkled to life over the 24 well-kept tables. Perfect green lawns under radiant green roofs, the bays and the shades almost identical in colour. He asked for a second queue and walked to his table. It was the one that overlooked the street and had a view of the river, as long as you knew which distant buildings to stare through. The half-court was free, as she had hoped it would be, and she walked quickly to the corner where she dropped her bag and removed the ball. She bounced it a couple of times and enjoyed how it felt snapping up into her hands. She spun it on her finger as she had been shown as a little girl and confidently raised it over her head. She started to move it beneath the hoop, shuffling forward and back, turning this way and that, shifting left, then right, pivoting on one foot, then the other, a long routine of gentle tests and short drills intended to prime her body, to remind it of what it was about to be asked, almost like a quick cheat sheet before a test. She set herself at the free throw line and quickly popped three smooth arcing throws that swished the ball through the hoop. After that, she made her way down the lane lines, first one, then the other, stopping at each division to shoot and score. Her eye was in, and she thrilled at her own accuracy and the ease with which she was making the ball go where she wanted. Emboldened and fully certain the result was going to be the same, she took herself to the three-point line and worked it counterclockwise by standing with her back to the hoop and then turning quickly to pop the shot at regular intervals along the line. When she had gone all the way round and made every shot, she retrieved the ball and walked to mid-court. She exhaled slowly, settling herself, 
and then looked up with a grin on her face. Okay, old man, she said. Let's see what you've got. In the park, the old man reached the clearing at the preordained time and was pleased to see his preferred spot was unoccupied. He brushed some dirt and twigs off the table and did likewise with the benches either side. From his bag, he carefully removed a thermos of black tea as well as the chess set that had been sitting beside it. He placed both on the table and sat himself down. He raised his eyes to ascertain the severity of the wind as if he could see it better than feel it and decided to leave his hat where it was, perched tidily atop his short silver hair. His tailored gloves he also kept on, and they gripped easily the lid of the thermos, which he loosened and took off, before pouring into it a small measure of the hot sweet beverage that he planned to savour as he played. Bringing his attention to the chess set, he undid the little clasp that fastened the walnut box and opened it to reveal the handcrafted playing pieces inside. Their beauty was no longer remarkable to him, having had them for so long, and there was no ceremonial pause before he positioned them one by one on both sides of the table. Once everything was in place, he took a leisurely sip of his tea and stared at the empty space on the bench opposite. His left eyebrow perked up inquisitively as he spoke. I believe it is my turn to start, no? Inside the pool hall, the young man stood briefly at the window, gazing out at nothing in particular. He sighed quietly to himself and turned back to the table. He had paid for the morning, so he knew he was under no pressure to get done. He plucked the balls from under the table and dropped them into one of the wooden triangles favoured by the establishment. He racked for a game of nine ball and wasn't worried he didn't have a diamond frame to hand. He knew how to set the balls inside the triangle, placing the nine ball in the middle and the yellow one ball on the foot spot at the head of the diamond shape, so it would be the first ball struck in the opening break. Happy with the formation, he gripped the triangle firmly at the base of the frame and rotated it upwards so it lifted cleanly off the balls, leaving them perfectly intact. He next grabbed his case and pulled out the balabushka's two parts before screwing them tightly together. He then reached for the chalk and sat it on top of the Q-tip and then held the cue horizontally in two hands and rotated the tip into the hollow of the blue cube until he was satisfied. He repeated the same routine for the second cue. He tossed a coin, called tails, and when it landed on heads, took the second cue and got ready to break. He lined up behind the white of the cue ball and slid the cue smoothly back and forth along the natural channel made by the base of his thumb and the place it met the rest of his hand. He slowed, pulled back more slowly 
and then struck the cue ball with a satisfying clack as he launched it like a missile into the diamond of coloured balls that had been waiting helplessly up the table. She spun out of her mid-court position at speed and raced for the hoop, but as she laid it up, she faltered and the ball jerked out of her hand, harmlessly hitting the link fence behind. She grabbed the ball and returned to her starting position. She spun in the opposite direction this time, and when she arrived beneath the hoop, she made the basket effortlessly. Oh ho, she cried. I think we know which side is your weak one. She went for the same move again. But this time, just like her first run, she lost control of the ball as she went for her shot. Not giving up easily, huh? she muttered. Back to mid-court and she went again and again and again, making three baskets in a row, but then missed the two attempts that followed that. She played out a conversation with her invisible opponent that ebbed and flowed with the games within the game. She was so immersed in her role-play that she hadn't noticed the arrival at the side of the court of a little boy on a scooter. He was watching her with intense fascination, his eyes widening as the drama of her imaginary battle played out before him. After a while, it was more than he could take. He called out boldly, Who the heck are you playing? The old man was several moves into his game. He sat very still, scrutinising the pieces in play with evident concentration. After a few long moments, he once again directed his gaze across the table, ostentatiously remained silent, and then repositioned his piece with a movement of consummate economy. A barely perceptible smile played on his lips, but it was gone by the time he rose and stepped to the other side of the table, where he sat down to view the board through his opponent's eyes. As he contemplated the best move, his face rearranged itself so he no longer resembled himself. He gently airlifted a piece to a new square and then slow blinked both eyes back across to the bench he had just vacated. He stood up and retook his original seat. Just as he was about to renew play, he became aware of a young mother nearby who approached him quietly with her little girl in tow. He turned his head towards her and nodded in silent greeting. She smiled sheepishly before speaking. Excuse me, she said. I'm sorry to interrupt your game, but I have seen you here every Sunday for months and you are always playing by yourself. But... It does seem like you are playing somebody else. I don't want to be rude, but would you mind terribly telling me who that is? Like, who is your opponent? The white cue ball smacked into the one ball and exploded the diamond of balls around the table, their glossy colours rolling and spinning seamlessly across the bays. Nothing dropped, 
but the required four balls had hit the rail, so it was game on. He put down the house cue and picked up the balabushka. Although he hadn't been playing much recently, he still potted the first two balls he went for. Missing the third, he swapped cues again and resumed play. Before he leant over the table to make his shot, he ostentatiously smoked an imaginary cigar and waved his hand in the air in a lazy S shape, a flourished affectation that amused him sufficiently to cause a smile to crease his otherwise serious face. He made the shot and was moving round the table when he heard voices at the bar. An older man he thought he recognised was talking with the manager. The man looked over to where he was and walked towards him. He peered over his glasses and his eyes narrowed slightly. I remember you. You're the kid who used to come in here all the time with your uncle, right? Still got that balabushka, I see. Nice. How have you been? Where's your uncle? At the side of the basketball court, the little boy called out to the young woman again. Excuse me, lady. Who are you playing? The young woman stopped and looked at the boy. She smiled. Who do you think I'm playing? The boy shrugged. I don't know. Somebody good, I guess. The woman raised her eyebrows at that. You're right. I am playing someone good. I'm playing my dad. The boy looked around the court. I don't see anyone. But it sure looked like you were playing someone. So your dad, huh? Yep. My daddy was very sick a few years ago and, and he died. And we used to play ball here and other places. I loved him a lot. And I like to come back here sometimes and play him again. So there you go, Mr. Investigator. What do you make of that? The boy looked at her for a while and said nothing. He was thinking. He turned away from her and placed his foot on his scooter, getting ready to go. Just as she was about to say goodbye to him, he spoke over his shoulder. That's cool. I'm sorry your daddy died. Have fun playing. Thanks, little man. I will. She took the ball, dribbled to the hoop, and shot. The old man regarded the young mother and her daughter with a friendly gaze. Do you like chess, my dear? he asked the girl. She wriggled for a moment, but her mother prompted her to reply. I don't think so, she answered. It looks boring to me. Yes, some people do find that. My wife thought it was boring too, at first, but she grew to love the game almost as much as me, and she became my best opponent. Where is she today? the girl asked. Did she not want to play? 
The old man's eyes lowered for a moment before he looked back at her to reply. Well, she had to go away, so she can't be here anymore. But I play her here every Sunday, all the same. Oh, that's nice, said the girl. I'm sure she's very happy you're doing that. The old man smiled at her. I like to think she is. The mother and daughter said goodbye and continued walking through the park. The old man watched them go and then addressed the other side of the bench. Well, they were really quite charming, weren't they? The young man leaned the house cue against the side of the table and went over to the balabushka and picked it up. Turning back to the older man, he said, He wasn't actually my uncle. He was an old family friend who kind of took me under his wing. We both loved pool and old movies, but his health was never great. He, he died of kidney failure about six years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, said the older man. You always seemed close when I saw you guys in here. The young man looked ruefully out the window. Yeah, we were. I miss him. But I like to come back here every now and then and shoot a few frames, just to honour him a bit. Well, I'm sure he appreciates it wherever he is now. That's a nice thing to do. I'll let you get back to it. But if you're ever looking for a game, just call me over. Thanks, man. I'll do that. And thanks for saying hello. Nice that you remembered me. He knew it wasn't his turn, but he lined up the balabushka to take a shot thought of his old friend and sunk the seven ball in the corner pocket. I wanted to do a story about grief and remembrance and I liked the idea of people finding their own idiosyncratic ways to honour or remember a loved one. The reobservance and reenactment of past rituals and routines, including sport, games and exercise, can be deeply personal and symbolic and profoundly meaningful. And it is a way we can choose to honour a person who is no longer physically with us. And it is our choice and our right to remember a loved one in a way that is uniquely fitting to us. Because when we love... We love uniquely. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Okay, so yeah, that was my story. And obviously it's a little bit on the the somber side. But it still kind of feels like it fits with the the broader theme of 
you know, marking the moment. Um, and I decided to include the, the sort of epilogue where I, that's what I do on the, on, on the app. I talk about my kind of my thinking behind the story. And remember, the, the stories on the app are meant to help people relax and chill and potentially go to sleep. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone's ever <laughs> made it past the first few paragraphs of my stories on the app. But I think um, some, you know, I'm deliberately I'm using my voice in a deliberately. Um, I don't want to say de-energized way, but it, it, you know, there is a methodical tone to my delivery that's that's deliberate uh in any case i like that story myself i think it i think it holds up and i hope you i hope you enjoyed it too so that's it that's it i'm not going to dilly dally i'm just going to say as i said at the end of the last story thanks for listening and um i hope whenever you listen to these stories i hope they've added something to the season um because yeah little stories are nice and it's nice to be (laughs) it's nice to have someone read you a story isn't it i remember enjoying that when i was a kid okay uh look mind yourselves don't forget you can always throw me some love on social media if that's something you're motivated to do uh i'm in all the the usual places just find the clear out podcast on um, youtube or facebook instagram or the main places i hang out and if you're really motivated and go i really like this thing that i do um you can support it on patreon.com and really get behind this independent podcast just for the price of a cup of coffee or tea or a pint or a sandwich or whatever it might be and it, would, it means a lot to me like that is a huge endorsement and makes me go i'm not totally insane for doing this thing but um it's up to you i'm not i'm not twisting anybody's arm okay thanks again really appreciate you choosing this podcast and this episode i hope you enjoyed it and i will be back next week with what i hope will be the christmas special Uh, you know was this not special enough it's kind of a double it's a double it's a bonanza anyway take care mind yourselves and i'll talk to you next week all the best bye